It is our privilege this morning to hear from one of our missionaries that's actually part of us. Um, our uh, University Christian Ministries Director, and for the last year has also been our team lead on the Hillcrest side, our special guest speaker this morning, although he doesn't come from around the world, he comes from in the midst of us. Would you please give our Pastor Brady a great big hand? Welcome. He's going to speak from the back today. Good morning, everybody. And uh, what we're going to do for this last Sunday of Faith Promise, we're going to tell you the CCF story, the way we tell it in an abbreviated way, the way we tell it to the students on Friday nights. And so you're going to watch the screen, and my rumbling, croaky voice will speak into your ear as we go, okay? So uh, we've been studying the book of Acts, which is all about the stories of how the Spirit of Jesus began the first communities and how those communities spread. And if you read the end of Acts, you discover that ends kind of open-ended. It doesn't really have a stop point. And so this is the ongoing story of God's work in the world over the centuries, and this is our local story, and so I hope it'll encourage you and uh, um, bless and challenge you all at the same time. So, the CCF story. Uh, one of the things important in my thinking about stories is, is God says over and over again, remember and do not forget. So when Israel's crossing the Jordan, he says, take stones out and make a pillar of stones there. So when your children's children's children ask you, hey, mom, dad, what's this pile of rocks all about? You can tell them the stories of the things that God did for your ancestors when he brought Israel out of Egypt. And so this is kind of our remembering time. And it's important to remember because if you don't, you can lose perspective. And when you lose perspective, you lose your sense of what the DNA of your life or your community life is all about. And if you lose perspective far enough, you can lose your head in the situation completely. And so part of the reason we remember and revisit is that we would keep a perspective on what we're all about. Uh, God always works in time and space in terms of the human dilemma and the challenge and the rescuing us from sin and death. And so our story begins once upon a time, a long time ago, toward the end of the sixth decade of a bygone century. That would be the latter part of the 1960s. Uh, Charles Dickens, when he starts to sail two cities, says something I think could be said of uh, this period of time in our American uh, experience. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. And so with the tip of the hat to Dixonian thinking, here we go. It was the age of knowledge, and it was an age of fearful folly. It was a time of dreamers, and it was a time when men sought to kill the dreams. It was for the young, the springtime of idealistic hopes, the end of war, the hippies, Woodstock, love vans, and all of it that went with it. But it was also the winter of deep despair, a seemingly endless war with a very unpopular president, seeming demise in the experience of the American dream. It was also an age of arrogance and 
a profound growing age of unbelief as Time magazine pondered the question of Nietzsche, is God dead, and came up with the thought that maybe so. It was a time generally in the religious culture and the Christian community that it felt like the sunset of Western culture was taking place, that the end of the world was coming about. Well, it was an end in other ways, too. For me, it was the end of high school. And so I was glad to end my career as a Blaine Borderite. You can see already that I was a leading kind of clothes guy in glasses, way ahead of the present fascination with horn rim glasses. We were already there. But after I graduated, I decided to remake myself in some kind of cultural icons of the moment. And so following the movie Easy Rider, I bought my American flag helmet and set out on the highway looking for adventure and whatever comes my way. I was born to be wild, a true nature's child. And so I got on board, headed down the freeway, and made it all the way to Bellingham. (laughs) 20 miles down the road of life and entered a major cul-de-sac called Western Washington State College, where I came knowing that I wanted to be a teacher because I'd been deeply influenced by a teacher who had convinced me that the primary problem of humanity was our thinking. If we could just educate people, the world would become utopian. And so I became a secondary education major. While I was doing that and living up the hippie life and all, at the same time, there was a God was at work completely unknown to me, that is God, and completely an unexpected vessel. Mom Hadley was completely hidden from the university world. She had never stepped on the campus. But she was a Pentecostal lady who was a person of great prayer. And one of the things she would pray from, she told us later regularly, was the promise of Joel for the outpouring of the Spirit. In that day I will pour out my Spirit on all people. The old and the young will dream my dreams and receive my visions, and I will give my spirit of power to my servants, both male and female. And she would pray for the college, for those young college students who she'd never met. She'd read about all the troubles on campuses, the the drugs, the anti-war movement, etc., and she was moved and burdened by it. And so she began to pray. So it leads to the question, what happens when a prayer is answered and the Spirit comes in power? Well, for Mom Hadley, it was quite an experience because while she was in prayer, she prayed for over 10 years for the university, for the college. And uh, one of the times in prayer, she told us later, was that she saw very vividly a mental picture of a, some type of room filled with obnoxiously bright colored chairs. We brought her to CCF, Uh, she was about 90 at that time, and we'd pick her up and bring her to Friday Night Fellowship, which met in Fraser Hall 4. And when she walked in, she says, I have seen this. And it was the picture of the room in her vision that the Lord gave her. And she said, and the Lord gave me a second picture, excuse me, of students filling that room in giving praise and love to Jesus. 
And so Mom Hadley sat in the midst of students and saw the very exact fulfillment of what God had promised her. But it wasn't just visions that happened. There was also spiritual revolutions happening all across the culture by this time. Time Magazine, having said God was dead in 1966, now said he's more alive than ever in 1970. And so the Jesus revolution or the Jesus people thing was going on. I ended up meeting a young guy. This is at his wedding, Glenn Suggs. And Glenn ended up living in me in my hippie house on High Street. And uh, he was the first open, verbal, confessing young Christian I met. And he would answer my questions, and I could watch his life, and he lived in our midst, and he began to help me see my way toward Jesus, so that on the 17th of October in 1970, I joined the Jesus Revolution at a Jesus People meeting out at Laremont Manor. Well, the Jesus People were anything but subtle, And so having come to faith and owning a janitor business with a really cool black van, I thought, I really ought to give my business to Jesus. And so I thought, well, how can I do that? So I hired a sign painter and put hallelujah on the back of my van. Praise be to Yahweh. And so we're living out there on the edge with Jesus. So what happens when the Spirit comes in power? Well... Divine encounters happen, Glenn with me. One time Glenn came home to the house we were living in. He says, yeah, I was talking to the, to the Hare Krishna uh, on campus today and got into a conversation with them, and they said that they were chanting and praying and that they were praying that the Eastern mysticism that was invading the Western world would completely sweep over Western Washington State College and that it would become the dominant voice. And I said, well, what would you say to him? He says, well, I told him, well, if you're praying that, we're going to pray that the Lord will sweep you into his revolution, and if not, that he'd sweep you off campus. So Glenn was telling this over dinner, and we, all those guys that were living together kind of looked at each other and said, well, you know, uh, we probably ought to get together and pray then if that's how this is going to happen. And so that coming Friday night, we met at Strawberry John Reese's house, And we had a prayer meeting of about 30 students. Delightful time. So we did it again the next week. That second night, students began to be moved on by the Spirit. And they began to share senses and impressions that the Spirit was giving to them. One young man stood up and he said, I feel like I have a word for us. I believe the Lord wants us to be present to the place we're trying to change. We need to get out of this house and move on to campus. And so Scott Sessions, myself, and a few others, in fact, went and signed up. What happens when the Spirit comes in power? Jesus communities are birthed. And so the Jesus community known as Campus Christian Fellowship was birthed at Western in the spring of 72. Now, 43 years later, that vision and that mission continue on. When the Spirit comes in power, unanticipated callings happen. I graduated in the end of 1973, and in the spring of 1974, I was running my janitor business, still getting ready to sell it, and I was going to apply for teaching jobs for the following year. And over a three-night period, the Lord began to speak to me in the middle of the night because I was working, driving back to Bellingham. 
And I really sensed it was his present, but it was confusing. I found myself being kind of emotional in ways that I wasn't normally used to. And on the third encounter, the Lord gave me a mental picture of Western lit on a hill, and the echoing scripture in my ear from the Spirit was, a city set on a hill cannot be hid. I began to cry, turned off the radio. I thought, man, I'm, I'm losing my mind or something. They said transition from college could be tough, but this was ridiculous. And so as I just drove and was listening to praying, I said, Lord, do you want me to go back? It had never entered my mind to be a pastor. It never entered my mind to be a college minister. It never entered my mind to be a missionary other than in, in the public school system. And I felt this sense of peace. So I told the Lord, well, Lord, I have no idea how to go back. If you, I mean, how did people do this? So you'll have to open up a door so that I can know the way that you would have me go. That same week, Scott and Julie Sessions asked me to go and visit a church they'd been uh, attending and really were enjoying it. And so that fun Sunday, I said, I'll come to the evening service with you. And so I went to a small little church and I discovered that when the Spirit comes in power, needed doorways do open. I went to this little church called Hillcrest Chapel. It had about 20 people in it. It met on James Street. That's that picture on the left. It was pastored by a pastor by the name of Richard Ellison. It originally had been called Revival Tabernacle, but they changed the name to Hillcrest Chapel. Richard Ellison had been called. He was a truck driver hauling logs out of the forest, had an eighth-grade education, uh, but he had been up and seen some of what God was doing at Western. And so he came up to me in the prayer time after the Sunday night service and says, can I take you out for dinner? And I thought, now there's a guy that knows how to get students to come to his church. And so I said yes, and so we, got to din we went to dinner, and he says, this is going to come completely out of left field for you. But this last week, I really felt the Spirit stirring me, and so I went and asked permission on my board if I could approach you and ask if you would be willing or interested in going back to the university and Hillcrest Chapel would like to help you go as a missionary. Open the door, says the Lord. So I ended up saying yes. And one of the things that really, really impressed me was the vision of Richard Ellison. Uh, about the time I came to start teaching on Wednesday nights, uh, they moved and we went to Jern's funeral home. And so I got to try to speak to the living and the dead simultaneously because they were getting ready to build. Uh, they bought some property that was on a crest of the hill on James Street behind Kmart. And so that's why they named it Hillcrest Chapel. Now you know why a church building that sits in a hole in Fairhaven is called Hillcrest Chapel. And so we were at Jern's Funeral Home, and then eventually the Free Methodist Church in the south side opened up, and Richard saw the opportunity, and so Hillcrest Chapel moved to here. What really impressed me was one conversation I had with him, though. He said, my concern and my aim is not whether students will come to Hillcrest Chapel. My aim is to see Hillcrest Chapel helping to bring Jesus to students where they live. This kind of open-handed generosity that he wasn't thinking and the church leadership wasn't thinking, what will we get inside our walls? It was, how can we get outside our walls? What later Pastor Bob Stone would call, are we going to be a force in the world? Are we going to be a field? Richard Ellison would have said a field. 
And so I came and began to teach, and I worked my way back to university. The mission of CCF and UCM that's supported through Faith Promise can be said pretty easily. We introduce students to Jesus. We grow students through a spirit-filled community on the campus, right in the midst of the rough and tumble of it all. And, we're, and we are supported primarily by this local church as well as others in the county and the state. We equip students. We have a vision to equip students and send them out to fulfill Jesus' mission of transforming the university, the marketplace, and the world. Simply, we aim to win, train, and send. And so as we thought about how to do that, we looked at Acts 2, 42 through 47, and that became, became the template for CCF as a student ministry in the very beginning. Later, it would become the template for Hillcrest Chapel as the two communities interacted with each other. And so we wanted, first and foremost, to be a place that really loved God, that worshipped Him and prayed to the triune God. And so we began Friday night fellowship meetings on campus. They'd start about 7 o'clock, and they'd go till about 11 o'clock. And we didn't have anybody to preach yet because we were all students and most of us, you know, had been a couple of years old and the Lord is all. And so we would just sing and read scripture. People would speak in tongues without any trans, uh, interpretation because we hadn't read the book of Corinthians yet. And God began to move mightily in our midst. Scott Sessions one time sitting out in Red Square, a couple other people, a banjo player, a trumpet pay, player, and him began to sing choruses. And so Red Square singing was birthed, and students have carried it on for the whole life of the ministry. And so there were all these pockets of prayer, as we call them now. We also understood that we needed to be a community of spiritual friendship, that the students would need, we'd need to encourage one another and to help us grow more mature, because mature we weren't. And so again, Acts 2, 42 through 47, spoke to us how they gathered together in their homes and stuff, and so out of that came the vision for small groups, or what we call core groups. And out of that also the vision to do one-to-one -one mentoring, to help people grow in very specific areas of need and opportunity. We understood that core was a place where the seeds of a new generation of student leadership would be nurtured and grown. And so to this day, we are a core-centric mission. So what happens when the Spirit comes in power? Well, all those things, but also what comes is the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And so we understood by this time, that myself and the other staff, there was now by this time a guy and a gal working with me, that our role was to equip students for serious leadership in terms of mentoring and evangelism on their campus. And this is the very first student leadership group that God put together. If you look there on the left with the arms crossed wearing a blue shirt, that's a very young Kim Sherwood. We also understood, because we'd all been thrown around by every philosophy you could imagine growing up in the 60s, that we needed to dedicate ourselves to learning and maturing in His Word. What happens when the Spirit comes? A love for the Word comes to the individual and to the community. Acts 2.42, remember when we studied it? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
And so we set off to be a center of learning and education. Kind of a, our vision was to be an underground Bible study in the midst of Western Washington State College and then university. And so we started the discipleship class, which I've taught every year since about the second year of the mission. We do pizza theology seminars. We do theological books, uh, theological studies. We do biblical book courses. And a student can come and find their faith growing intellectually as well as experientially in just wonderful ways. All of this in one of the most liberal, secular universities in the nation at that time. What happens when the Spirit comes? The Spirit brings mission. A community with a mission happens. And we knew that our mission was, as students say it today, and Jeff Mumley likes to say, our mission was to make Jesus famous in the university and have his name raised by people who loved and adored and were full of gratitude toward him. And we knew the best way to do that was individually motivated students. And so fundamentally, most of our outreach is around individual students touching others, students moving back into the dorms, students finding ways to access other students in their classes and stuff. But we also have this wonderful main square, kind of a marketplace of the ancient world, the, the agora, as it would have been known. That's where St. Paul oftentimes went. He went to the square where all the trans crossings were taking place. And so we started doing stuff in Red Square, and we've been doing stuff ever since the beginning. And it's creative stuff, it's bold stuff, and it's joyful stuff, as you can see. Sometimes it's group stuff, other times it's individuals. One of my favorite was when we hired the devil to hand out free copies of C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters to students. I thought that was rather a bold stroke. I think Dave Nebel had that idea. And then I, uh, we've had times, you can see Kelly there out painting. You can see one of the, uh, the interns playing guitar. And you can see Jeff Jenkins just being entirely cool, doing nothing. But we were out in the square where things were happening. But it wasn't only there that we began to have passion and vision. We knew that our hearts needed to be shaped. And we tried to think, how does mission change a heart? And one of the things that Kerry kind of, my first associate, who was very first convert of CCF, he was reading Deuteronomy one summer, and he came to me and says, I think that we need to form a ministry of students that will grow their hearts transgenerationally. And so a compassionate visitation ministry to our elders was created as we begin to visit St. Francis and other centers for elder care. We also began to see a growing number of international students, and we had kind of hit and miss shots at it until the Lord sent to us Jonathan and Liz Lytle, and we began to see them put together a ministry to international students. We're using American students as well. that's just blossomed and grown as having wonderful influence. But it isn't just uh, the, the pastoral staff and the students. You know, we also have Lori Carney here, who consistently, who has such a profound love for, for international students and, and is always bringing them here and other places. And if she's here today, she's probably got a few with her. I don't, oh, there she is right there. there. And there's the international students with her, you know. So, Lori, we love you and your shared vision with us. 
Well, what happens when the Spirit comes? Well, in the book of Acts, it says, And God added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. What happens? New life happens. New life like the life that came into me through the the missionary work of, uh, of Glenn. What happened to other students over the ages that have come to faith? If you look up in the left-hand top corner, that is Dory. We would have known her as Takamura because she hadn't yet met Tim Vale and married him. And they would go and spend years in Japan doing missional work before returning here and now a part of our community here in leadership and service. And so new life was springing up all around us. It was a time of just real enrichment and continues to be. Early on in my life in Jesus, there was a, uh, this tree right up in Laurel Park, just up from my house on High Street. And I loved to go there and sit under it in the different seasons. You know, in the in sprinkling rain, it would shelter me in the summer, etc. And I would sit there and pray and think. And one of the things that really struck me about this was the, the, the Lord spoke to me one time in my devotional re, uh, reflection. That he said that freely you've received, freely give. Have you ever thought about how much comes to you free? That somebody else put it together and made it happen? I begin to think about Glenn and my being surrounded by the Jesus people and then CCF and all. And, and I never had the chance to read Silverstein's The Giving Tree as a child. I had a, you know, a sad childhood, not getting to read that. But I begin to think about CCF and its partnership and life relationship with Hillcrest Chapel. I begin to think of it in a metaphor that what CCF is, it's a giving tree. It gives all kinds of gifts to students and professors who hadn't done anything except show up and it was already there waiting for them. Of course, for me, it's been a profound source of giving, not the least by any nature. It gave me a wife. This is Shirley as my office administrator and secretary. Bob Stone thought I needed one of those. Maybe he was playing Cupid. I've never asked, but maybe. But I'm glad if he was, he did, because we have had a fabulous life together, loving college students and being part of this community. It gave me, and it's given many other people, lifelong friends. Kim Sherwood being one of them. It has allowed me to work with generations of fabulous young men and women. Yes, Dave Nebel, you are still, in my eyes, a young man. (laughs) Young men and women who will serve the well-being of students in the name of Jesus. And it's just a delight. The young lady on the left there, the blonde, is Scott Sessions' widow, Julie, who has now joined staff with us and carries on that original vision. We've expanded to our kind of local communities, Whatcom and Skagit, and the teams out there are just a delight. Kristen and Joey at Whatcom. Uh, Christian Anderson came to me as an intern. He says, hey, I'd like to stay a second year, and I'd like to pioneer something down at Skagit like Jeff Mumley did up at Whatcom. And I said, okay. 
And so, you know, we got to talking, uh, and he started that. And then he said, I'd like to stay on staff. And I said, okay. And he knew that normally we had about a five-year commitment uh, for a new staffer. And I, and I said, so, you know, why don't you pray about that commitment? He said, okay, I will. And he comes back to me a few days later. He says, I'd like to make a 13-year commitment. Now, you'll have to ask Christian where that came from. You know, it had to be some spirit that got him to that number. But nevertheless, what fabulous people like him and Joanna. What a, what a delight to work with those folks. And I've had the same delight working with the team here at, at Hillcrest this last year. So what happens when the spirit comes? Leadership gets raised up. Leadership's taken seriously. People are equipped. But Jesus said that we were to make disciples beginning in Jerusalem go to the ends of the earth. And so we knew that part of our DNA had to be something far beyond the Western Front, far beyond WWU. And so we came to understand that we were to be a community without borders. And so we try to nurture that in the university students' experience, uh, the CCF uh, students. And so one of the things we started very, very early on was where most students were going to the beaches to, you know, have spring break party, we started sending out student spring impact teams. And they have literally gone all over the country as well as out of country. And these are just a few of the places. One time they were down in Santa Barbara, and uh, a tough place to serve Jesus, I know, down on the beach where the students were hanging out. And they, they wanted to convince us and their supporters that they really were doing God's work. And so they told us, but it's not a vacation. And so SSI continues every year, literally Hundreds and hundreds of students have gone out on these trips. We began to get requests for uh, groups that said, you know, we're just student-led groups. We don't have any staff. We're kind of the way CCF started before any of the staff joined. And could you send us somebody? And we, we didn't have anybody to send at that time. And so eventually that came to have a vision as we begin to think about our own experience as educators and stuff, what would happen if we brought student leaders here? And so Sikkim was born, Student Institute and Campus Ministry, first here in the Northwest in Bellingham, May and June, and then on the East Coast in the Atlantic Coast Sikkim. We're hoping next year or the year after we'll be in the New Jersey Coast, and right now we're waiting for funding from a major grant to underwrite the expansion of three or four more Sikkims, all of them copies of the vision of what's happening here. But Sikkim would not be able to grow like it has here if it was not for folk like you who've opened your homes, made beds available, cooked breakfast or at least gave them breakfast, and supported it so that students could come in a way that wasn't prohibitive economically. This last May was our largest Sikkim ever. We're pushing all the, the, the boundaries in terms of, of growth. And so we just need to have you folks build more bedrooms and, uh, or buy a hotel or something because we believe this is going to keep on growing. We also were asked to send college pastors we realized there wasn't anybody in our movement that was training college pastors. And so way back in 1977, Carrie Kino and I, as education majors, began to think about it, and what was birthed out of that was the internships. 
now 38 years and going and growing. To date, 255 men and women have given a year and prayed about a lifetime and have graduated from the UCM internship. They are literally all over the state and the world. We have grads who are either directing or serving on every one of our major four-year schools, secular schools, as well as all the work in, in British Columbia has been started by UCM interns. And then we have the, all those other grads that don't go on into pastoral or missionary work as a career, thousands of, intern, uh, of grads, both interns and general students, serving in a plethora of places, doing all kinds of work in all kinds of types of work and in all kinds of places around the world. This is an amazing thing. You can invest locally and impact globally. How good is that? And they do go globally. These are just some of the folks. It's that, that story that John tells in the gospel. If he would have told all the Jesus stories, all the ancient libraries couldn't have held it. And if we told all the stories, you would get really, really frustrated with me. So this slide tells the story. We've got campus pastors in Belgium, probably the most secular culture in the world. We've got a young woman doing campus pastoring in Spain. We've got a woman who went as a church planter, a single woman who went as a church planter for Eastern Europe and made her headquarters in England. And now she's married, got married a couple, three years ago. We've got a team in the Netherlands reaching those needed pagan Dutchmen. We've got people, I'm a Dutchman, so I know about pagan Dutchmen, okay? We've got the Wendlers who will be coming home, and you'll get to see them this year when they come on furlough, who are working and now leading an entire major team in China that includes university ministries. You heard Therese a while back share about going to Sri Lanka after her conversion here at Western, growing in CCF, and her and her husband now are just doing a fabulous and growing work in Sri Lanka. The gal next to her is poor. Poor came from Thailand as an international student, was brought to faith, grew in the fellowship, and now has returned where she is a professor in Thailand and a Jesus follower. We have the Koshel family in Germany. We've got people in Israel, in Japan, in Vietnam, Mexico, and as I already mentioned, Canada, and a plethora of other nations. And this is what's really sweet. We have people ready to go. We've introduced three of the couples to you. The fourth couple are uh, international pastors, campus pastors over in, at WSU. Um, uh, uh, Weston did his internship with us and met Allison. Allison grew up here as a student leader. They married, and now they're ready, along with Peter and Katie, to go to Mozambique. And I thought this was a fitting time to share with you that one of our gals who's been on our staff, Rachel, who is just such a blessing for, to us and has such a passion to teach God's word that she is leaving staff at the end of this year and will go to Regent College to do her master's in theological um, studies. And so I told Rachel if she can't get a job afterwards, we'll take her back. So, so we'll hire somebody new and introduce them to you, but thank you, Rachel, for all that you have brought to students and to this community. So a bit of our story. There's a tremendous legacy here. 
tremendous experience of something that's intentionally handed down or remains from one generation to another over time. It's a legacy that we need to remember and that we need to pray for, and so we invite you to do that. You know, I always ask the students about their personal legacy and influence in CCF as freshmen. I'd want to ask you, what will your personal legacy be? What stone of remembrance will you add to the story of Hillcrest and to its growing mission and influence? What will your faith, your generosity of time, your generosity of finances, what will it hand down to the generations coming up behind you, those men and women who are eager and willing to go to the very ends of the earth? We are so thankful for your generosity. But there are, I could have put two more slides of other interns who are right now searching out where they might serve in the coming year or two. All of them will need to be funded. We have this wonderful problem, Hillcrest. We have this kind of ongoing group of human beings that call this their home community and that want to go out to make a difference for Jesus. And so I pray that you'll pray with us that God will expand our vision, expand our resources, and expand our hearts of generosity. And so thank you, and may God indeed bless you and continue to cause you to be generous in heart and mind and spirit. So CCF, it's like the book of Acts. It doesn't end. It's to be continued. And so we pray you'll pay a part in the sequel. When God formed the Moravian movement, young college-age students began to sell themselves onto slave ships to reach slaves being transported to the, to the, modern, to the new world. They had a motto. The Moravian motto was, hmm, excuse me, for the glory of the Lord and for his lamb we go. I pray that that could become the emotional, spiritual model of every one of you. God bless you.